welcome back for those of you who were here last year and a huge hello for those who've decided to listen. Ten. That's, a, that's all right, not a problem at all. We're going to whistle through this. Few housekeeping notices before we start. I'm sure you found a cafe to order your drinks. I'm sure most of you know where the toilets are, should you have an urgent need during the sessions. Ladies out left, gents out right, so fine. Also this year, as I'm sure you'd appreciate, um, we've grown a bit, <laughs> which is wonderful, which is why we're in here, which has the double advantage that we can now record these teaching sessions, which is great. Our aim is that they will be uploaded to the Needgate Church website as a podcast and we will upload the notes. Yes? So that if you somehow miss a week and you want to read the notes as well, you can do that. But we will not do that until after each session. So you're not going to be able to do ahead. Yes? I can't guarantee exactly when they're going up. We're having a few tweaks with that, but they will be up eventually as a set. Is that good? Yeah, because yeah, I know some of you have already said, I can't make sessions such and such and such and such, but that's absolutely fine. So that's where we're going with that. Now, I did ask you, if at all possible, to read the first eight chapters of 1 Samuel. Thank you for those who've already done it. Just to make you aware... If you want to leave at the interval, this is the reason for your get-out clause. The eight-part series will cover the whole of 1 Samuel, the whole of 2 Samuel, and the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings. Okay? So I'm sure you can appreciate it's a huge amount to cover, and I will be doing what I consider the highlights that God wants us to focus on. Sometimes that's going to be a broad spectrum. Sometimes it's going to come down to tiny details. But if there's something thinking, I wonder why Pat didn't look at that, that is your cue to go and look at it yourself. Yes? Wonderful. Let's just open in prayer. Father, I thank you for these wonderful people, for their dedication to learn of you. Lord, I pray you will take your word, take your words, and God in all humility, put them into my mouth, so that what comes out is what you once said, and not what I think is a good idea. We lay it before you, make us alert, ready to listen. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. amen. Turn then straight into the first book of Samuel. 1 Samuel. You will need your Bibles with you at all points. And sometimes it makes it interesting if we've got slightly different translations because I might say what does it say in a different one to the NIV on the whole I'm working from the NIV okay just one thing anyone remember this from the last series you don't have to have been here for the last series don't panic that you're being disadvantaged but sometimes when we're dealing with a lot of material you think I can't remember anything all I want you to remember is one thing. That one thing could be a tiny thing, it could be a whole idea, but just bear in mind that God sometimes just wants you to remember one thing, and that will take you through this week. Can we have phones off? That would really be helpful. Okay, just one thing. Okay. The series is going to start exploring some very key people. But before we actually look at the list of that, let's go into the words. And I want you to look, funnily enough, at chapter 2, not chapter 1. Chapter 2. You know it very well. Okay. It is the prayer, sometimes known as the song, of Hannah. Look at what she says. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Amen. Do not keep talking so proudly, 
or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Amen. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Oh my Lord, I'm holding on to that at the moment in the UK. The foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Why have I started with that one? Well, I tell you, in that short song, the short prayer, Hannah encapsulates a huge amount of 1 Samuel. Let me show you why. She talks about God opposing the proud and exalting the humble. We are going to learn about characters who exalt themselves in their own eyes and God makes them humble. Secondly, despite evil, God is always at work. And God is going to raise up a messianic king. Now bear in mind, when Hannah said this, Israel had no king. So it's not only a wonderful prayer, it's a prophetic prayer. Now, our key characters. We're going to look a little bit at Eli. Now, I know it's Samuel and the kings, but in order to understand Samuel, we're going to have to look a little bit at Eli. I'm sure you know about Eli, but I found out some things along the way that really made me think. He is a failed father. Samuel, the last of the judges. We had 12 of them, remember, in the book? But Samuel is the last of the actual judges and the first one in the book of 1 Samuel. He is a leader of transition. Oh, my goodness. It is incredibly difficult to be a leader during a time of transition. Yes? Politically, any way you choose. Then we're looking at Saul, Israel's first king, trying to figure out what a king should do. There was no protocol. There was no precedent. He was having to figure it out. Then, of course, we're going to look at David. In an eight-part series, we'll probably have to disproportionately spend longer on David because there's more of it. That's okay. The king, who was called the king after God's own heart, yet whose own heart was troubled. And Solomon, renowned for his wisdom, and he forgot how to practice his own advice. Ever met anybody like that? Yes. Okay, so the aims of the series, this whole concept of humility versus arrogance is really important. Starting and finishing well. We did a brilliant summer series last year here on running the race. And it's not just how you start, it's how you finish. Many of us are great starters. I, I am a great starter and had a huge problem in my life with finishing things. My needlework teacher, when I was eight years old, used to make me do the same four stitches over and over again. She never told me how to do it, or better, showed me how to do it. She just made me wait 45 minutes around a desk, got to her, and she said, wrong, do it again. I'm serious. I had two years of that with her. She never once showed me how to do it. Pat's looking. We know we love craft. Can you imagine how it felt like that? Until the very last time she was my teacher, and I was waiting for her to say, wrong, do it again. She said something different. She said, you'll never finish anything, Pat. There's a saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but 
Names will never hurt me. Rubbish. Things spoken over you can last a long time. It's taken me a long, long time to realize, yeah, I can finish things. And in God, I can finish well. And that's what he wants us to do. We're going to explore our expectations regarding leadership. Now, this will hold true in a biblical sense for kings and priests, but it also holds true in every aspect of life. You could be a leader in a place of work. You could be a leader in your family. You could even be a leader of yourself. That's a weird concept, isn't it? But let's we're going to have a look at that. How to understand and learn from all those who've gone before us. <laughs> Up on screen we have, everyone knows how to raise children, except the people who have them. For those of you who've had children, have you ever been advised by someone who's not got any? Oh yeah. We're going to look at quality parenting. This, for me, is a huge aspect of this series and how to break the cycle that we found in the book of Judges. Now, along the way, what does it take to make a king? Is it filling the role or displaying godly character, or can it be both? We have preconceptions about roles, don't we? If you're a teacher, you're supposed to be. If you're a mum, you're supposed to be. God forbid these days, if you're a dad, you're supposed to be. And that's changing all the time, isn't it? What is the role? What happens when we stray from God's word? Well, we know things go wrong, but we're going to look at whether they go wrong or they go spectacularly wrong. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Major theme of this section. What happens when the kids run riot? Oh, I shouldn't ask you to put your hands up, so I won't, if you've had a kid who's run riot. But they can. But God's faithfulness... Sorry, Mama? All your family run riot. Oh, we better pray for you later then. <laughs> this could be a series for you. God's faithfulness throughout everything should be our example, and much, much more. Now, don't worry about this. At the front for you to get at the end, don't all rush now. Your notes, plenty of them, and you will have this map in them. Now, I only put it up to show you. I'm sure many of you recognize the map of Israel, yeah? Um, who can tell me what happened at Carmel? Absolutely. It was when Elijah confronted the false prophets of Baal. Right. Oh, I love this. Last time we had a television and pointers don't work on tellies, but they do on projectors. Right. This bump here is Carmel. So you can see how it would look over the sea. But the areas that we're going to be looking at, sorry, I realize I'm over here. Okay. Are these around here. So Shiloh the place where the tabernacle was. Remember, the temple has not yet been built. Gilgal and Ramah, these are going to be significant places for Samuel, as is Kiriath-Jerim and Jerusalem. Gath, anyone know what Gath is? Bob, what's Gath? It uh, belongs to the Philistines, yes. We're going to look at some of the five city-states when we come to David. Ziglag is an important one. So that's going to be a reference map for you later on in the series. Okay. So, change. Let's do a whistle-stop background of judges. Right? Initially, Israel's tribal chiefs, remember the 12 tribes, maintained a semblance of order. That's the closest we're going to get to what they were trying to do. Semblance. God appoints judges when his people come into Canaan, which is the promised land. There were 12 judges in the book of Judges. Remember, Samuel is judge number 13. Right? In Judges, there were only 12. 325 years. And it was a cycle. Do you remember? Yeah? It's a long time to stay with the same leadership model. And if you know in your work about leadership models, just when you've got it cracked, somebody changes it. Yes? This is what was happening. Things started to slide. Why? The nation faced decline 
because they always compromise their high calling in God, abandoning his decree to drive out the people of the land. We're going to be looking more in this series about this weird concept of ethical warfare. It came up in the feedback from last session. How can ethical warfare be possible? How can God say, wipe them all out and that be okay? We'll be exploring that. They began to adopt Canaanite customs, which leads to moral and spiritual pollution, and their initial unity gives way to fierce tribal unification. And the very last verse of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Is that not a verse for our times? Everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. Now that's because we are now moving from theocracy to monarchy. It's a very important concept, but it's not a difficult concept. A theocracy, which is what we should have had in Judges, God is overall, and he chooses to communicate through priests, Levites, elders, and judges to the people. And it goes the other way. The people are mediated by the priests to speak to God. Yeah? Very direct, very straightforward. However, we've now got the monarchy coming into play. God is still above. The people are still here. The priests and Levites are still in the chain of command, but who's gone? Judges and elders are no longer going to be forming a huge part of the monarchy situation. Instead, we have a king. So in theory, God should speak to the king who speaks to the people and on behalf of the people to God alongside the priests and Levites. Those roles are going to get very confused, which is why God substitutes in the prophets. We've got a couple of prophets here who are going to be so used by God, but in what I would call almost a flammable situation. They're not situations I would want to get into. Let's get back into the word. Go back into chapter 1. Are you still with me, people? Good, good, good. Chapter 1. Okay. One Samuel, one verse one. Most of the time I'm going to be reading from the scripture, which means I get to do the long words. Is that okay? Yeah, good. Okay. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Now you know why I'm reading it, yes? He had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Okay, quick pause. Polygamy. Two wives. Not unheard of in the Old Testament, not unheard of in many cultures. In the majority of cases, there were two key reasons for polygamy. One was to breed more children, to make sure that between them they should look after you in your old age. They were your pension. The second reason, which happened a lot, is if a woman tragically lost her husband in battle... She was essentially abandoned unless someone else took them under her, her under their wing. And that's what often happened. We don't know which was the case here, but I think it's likely that Elkanah was going for lots of kids. Yes? Unfortunately, Hannah had none. Any ideas why you think that might be important? In that culture? Shame. Yes, absolutely. That's a great word. Shame. She was regarded as a complete and utter failure. If any of you have family members or close friends who've ever experienced infertility, you will understand the anguish that Hannah was feeling. Let's pick it up. Verse 3. Year after year, this man went up from town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas... The two sons of Eli, that's a high priest, were priests of the Lord. 
Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and all her sons and daughters. Oh, look at that little word, all. All her sons. Isn't that just underlining? She's got lots of kids. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion. Oh, what's that saying? He loved her twice as much, right? Because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Ah, that's a tough one, okay. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Now, I know we haven't got photographs of scripture and the characters, but this painting is so graphic to me. Look at the look on Penina's face, just over her shoulder saying, ah, I've got kids and you haven't. But it wasn't enough for that just to be a statement. She was provoking her all the time. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Oh, dear. I don't know who to feel more sorry for, the husband or the wife. Because that's a no-win question, isn't it? Am I not worth more than ten sons? Actually... You're missing the point. But she can't say, actually, I would prefer the children. It's a no-win answer. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorposts of the Lord's temple. Good place to sit, watch who's coming in, watch who's going out. In bitterness of soul. Hebrew word there. Is for where we get the word Mara from. Yeah? In the Exodus, Mara, the waters of bitterness. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you'll only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. Oh, quick one. What's that? The no razor being used on his head? A Nazarite vow, yes. That's interesting. Samuel is one of the very few people in Scripture that had a Nazarite vow on his life. Anyone remember which of the judges also had a Nazarite vow? Oh, you're quick. Yes, Samson. No wonder he had a problem with his hair. Right. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Okay, so on the same day, she's got her husband telling her, am I not worth more to you than ten sons? And she's got a priest saying, will you stop coming to church drunk? This poor woman, she's got so much misunderstanding going on, hasn't she? Bless her heart but she's got a bit of a spine, this one. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Grief is about not only actual loss, but hoped for loss. Yes, and that's what a lot of people who have miscarriages, who cannot conceive of going through, is grief. Eli immediately changes. Go in peace, and may the Lord of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Oh, there's a mini sermon right there. Nice little three-pointer for you. Anyone need a quick three-pointer sermon? Hmm. Number one, she pours out her heart in prayer honestly before God. She holds nothing back. Two, she receives comfort from another believer, in this case, Eli the priest, and she's prepared to accept comfort. Sometimes in your grief, you can shut people out. And third, she leaves the problem with the Lord. Great approach if you've got a serious problem. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, 
and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son, naming him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Some of you who have references at the bottom of your text may spot there that Samuel sounds like the Hebrew for heard of God. Reference Bibles will often give you that tiny bit of explanation. Okay, please note, this was not an immaculate conception. She conceived in the good old-fashioned way. And sometimes when a woman is barren, the last thing she wants to do is the good old-fashioned way. But she did, and she conceived. Now, she then takes him back. What's happened? She has promised, I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He shall be given to the Lord. Could that be said of you? I'll leave that one with you. Quick background. She fulfilled her promise. It's one thing to say, God, if you do this, then I will. And then he does it. And, ooh, did I really, really mean that? Now, you need to think, if Samuel had stayed in the family home, I think sibling rivalry would have been a big problem. Because what do we know? Elkanah has given Hannah not one portion, but two. So she is the favorite. If she then, after all this time, has a son, what's he going to be? The favorite. Okay. And is he outnumbered by other children? Oh, yes. I think that could have been a major problem. Now, Elkanah says to her, when she says, look, I'm going to stay back. Let's just pick it up in verse 21. When the man Elkanah went up with his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord, Hannah did not go. She said, after the boy is weaned, I'll take him and present him before the Lord and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you. Some translations say, do whatever you think is best. Oh, that we had YouTube for the Bible bits. I'd like to see how that was said. It's, oh, do whatever think is best. Or, oh, all right, do whatever you think. Or, oh, I'm not getting involved in this. You, th- you know, we don't know. But what do you think that's saying about the family dynamics? Anyone want to make a guess? He trusted her, could be one way of looking at it. What well, might be an opposite way? I don't care. You do it, your kid, you do it. Yeah. Points to ponder. Things for you to go away and think about. What is your reaction when God actually fulfills a request that you prayed for? Do you say, Lord, thank you, immediately? Or is there a gap? Or maybe you actually forget to say thank you. I wonder if you've ever had to deal with sibling rivalry. (laughs) I've got murmurings and mutterings going on around here. I'm not going to ask you to disclose. I would never do that. I once threw my little sister's wooden brick at my younger brother's head. And I missed. His aim has always been better than mine. And I missed. But the brick kept going and went through a plate glass window. My mother did not punish me for throwing the brick. She punished my brother for ducking. (laughs) Oh yes, I've had to deal with sibling rivalry. And have you ever had to offer God something really significant? I wonder what happened. It's coffee time already. Off you go. I'll see you back here in no more than 15 minutes. Take care. Right, does someone have music on? I can hear music. Right, okay. Lovely. Are we back? Everyone, I presume, has now signed the register just so that we got a track of who's been here when. And you should have a little chart on the offerings. Don't worry about that just now. 
We'll come back to it in just a moment. Um, just a quickie as well. If you need to let me know for some reason that you can't come and you want my mobile, there's cards at the front. Do help yourself. Okay. Points to ponder. Those will all be in your notes, so you'll have something to help you. I know that before when I've done that, people have used that as part of their journal work, spiritual journal, to really start thinking. Okay, you've had your coffee, tea, gluten-free cake, whatever else is going. Okay, what was Samuel coming to when Hannah finally took him to meet Eli? I think it looked a little bit like this. Out of the frying pan, into the fire. If he thought it was tricky at home, my word, what was he coming into? He is about three years old. That was a standard sort of age for a child to be considered to have been weaned. Yes? When he first came. Bear that in mind. Hophni and Phineas. There's a double act if you ever wanted one. The sons of Eli, who were regarded as priests. They expected to succeed Eli as high priest. I wonder if that was going to happen. Chapter 2. Let's pick it up in verse 12. Eli's sons were what? Oh, great. That's our first comment on these two guys. Were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Now, it was the practice of the priests with the people that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice, and while the meat was being boiled, okay, on your chart, your third one down, is the peace offering. The only offering that we have in scripture that involves boiling is a peace offering. Okay? I'm not going to go into great lengths about that. We haven't got time, but I thought you might like that. While the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand, like a big Neptune, you know, and stick it in the big pot. He would plunge it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself whatever the folk brought up. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh, which was the base where the tabernacle was. That's what used to happen. But at the time that Hophni and Phinehas were around, this is what was happening. But even before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. So they're now talking about the burnt offerings, the cooked as opposed to boiled. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. In other words, I want a really nice juicy bit of meat. Right? If the man, that is the person offering, said to him, let the fat be burned up first, that's right, because the fat was considered God's portion in any sacrifice, then take whatever you want after that. The servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. Right, these, this is a tabernacle scenario. These are supposedly men of God. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Oh my goodness, what is happening well, the law says that the needs of the priests, specifically Levites, were to be met by the tithes of the people. You've got verses to check on later on in your notes. Yes? The Levites did not have an inheritance in the land. All of their needs were to be met by the people. And a significant part of that was they got meat from the sacrifices. But only when God's part had been offered. What are Hophni and Phineas doing? They're saying, we want it first. And we want it now. And if you're offered, 
Forgive me if any of you are vegans or vegetarians. You can put your fingers in your ears for a moment. If you like meat, which would you rather have a joint of? Something that's boiled or something that's roast? Roast. It tastes much nicer. Which is why the burnt offerings was a more significant offering. We might go into that another time. But God made a system where they could be provided for. Hoffy and Phineas were just out of the way. This is what I want. I want the best. And I want it first. None of this put in the forking nonsense. I'll have that bit first. That's the juiciest bit. I'll have that now. And the poor offerer, he's saying, hang on a minute. Doesn't the Lord say this? And said, well, if you don't do what I say, I'll take it by force. Woo! So they're taking advantage of their position to satisfy a lust for power, possession, and control. Not exactly qualities you expect of a priest. Yes? Or any church leader. In doing so, they endangered the integrity of the whole priesthood. It wasn't just, oh, well, they're bad priests, but never mind, we've got lots of others. You know as well as I do. If I said the word good politician, <laughs> yeah, you might think, well, all politicians are bad. Well, some politicians are not as good as others, but we tar them all with the same brush, don't we? If a priest was endangering the integrity of his role, it affected everything else. Now, that's a horrible thing to say, but sometimes people look at us and say, you're doing that? Call yourself a Christian? Ooh. We have an integrity to maintain before God. Now, this flesh hook, this three-pronged hook, was used to choose meat that was intended for the sacrifice, not for the priest. They were, they were doing it right, left, and center. They should not have had anything to do with that meat. It was only ever going to be sacrificed. But they're saying, I don't want it for sacrifice, I want it for me. Completely wrong. This whole thing, though, they're saying, I want it before it's offered to God. So they're elevating themselves above God. So they're not only treating the priesthood with contempt, they're treating God with contempt. Interesting, the offerings were intended to show honor and respect to God while asking for forgiveness. Does that not strike you as odd? So Hophni and Phineas are sinning whilst making offerings for sin. It's not just that they've sinned yesterday, but we're coming and repenting before God. They are sinning in the moment that they're offering for sin. Gross hypocrisy. Now that should read 1 Samuel 2.12, not 2.2, beg your pardon. In 1 Samuel 2.12, almost as an afterthought, but it's probably the one we think of first, they were seducing young women in the tabernacle itself. Whoa. That is technically known as spiritual abuse. Yes, it's sexual abuse, we get that. But it's also a spiritual abuse. They are abusing their role, saying, you must come with me, I'm the priest. Yes, tragically, that kind of behavior did not stop in the Old Testament. It's a terrible thing for a three-year-old boy to come into. Yes? Now then. Ah, we come on to that. Good point. You've jumped. Absolutely. Chris is, Chris is saying if that was your children, wouldn't you do something? Yeah. You're jumping two points ahead of me, Chris. Hang in there. Lovely forerunner spirit. We're going to get there. Now, this next portion, I'm not going to put on screen. It is in your notes, but I want you to listen very, very carefully. I shall say this. Only once. This is taken from a very interesting internet article, and I've cited it all in your notes, so you don't worry. Quote, Somewhat ominously for a nation about to become a monarchy, the first thing we observe is that inherited authority is inherently dangerous. For two reasons. 
The first is that there is no guarantee that descendants of even the greatest leader will be competent or faithful. The second is that being born to power is often a corrupting influence itself, resulting all too often either in complacence, either, you know, they're going to do what they like, or, as in the case of Eli's son, entitlement. Oh, is that not the curse of our society? Entitlement. Eli performs his work as a sacred charge from God, but his sons see it as a personal possession. Growing up in an atmosphere analogous to a family business, they expect from a young age to inherit the father's privileges. But because this family business is God's own shrine, giving the family a claim to divine authority over the people, his son's malfeasance is all the more injurious. Okay, big long words. Basically, they should have known better. Yes? But think about it. In a society where you're going to inherit dad's job, <coughs> you can have sometimes entitlement. I mean, nothing against them, but look at the royal family for a second. They've been born into privilege, born into power. There is a sense of entitlement. Whether you're a monarchist or not, the assumption is they're going to carry on with the family business. But if you've got someone who's going to rebel against that, you have problems. Those of us who are old enough just to remember some of our English history, the abdication crisis happened because it was a case of you stick with the family business or you don't. Yes? When you're dealing with leadership, this is a major problem. Eli knew his sons were evil. Let's pick it up. Actually, let's just take a tiny bit and just reinsert the finishing. Verse 18 of chapter 2, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. How old was he? Yeah, Evie. That's okay. How old was Samuel when he went to the temple? Three. And what does it then say about him? He is ministering before the Lord. Steph, what would it look like if you had three-year-olds ministering before the Lord? <laughs> A bit chaotic, yeah. Now, we, I, let's go on because we need to clarify that. He was a boy wearing a linen ephod. You think, yeah, okay, that's telling us about his clothes. Ephods were normally reserved for priests. Okay. Each year, his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife. Okay, they're now working as a team. Good. Saying, may the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. The Lord was gracious to Hannah. She conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. So she's technically got six kids now. Yeah. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. So he's gone at eight, but what's going to happen to him next is before he's a man. In Hebrew culture, you're a man at 12 or 13 for your bar mitzvah. So between the ages of three and 12 is where this formative thing is about to happen. Okay? Let's, having had that little segue, go back to these things. What, Chris, is Eli going to do? Verse 22. Eli, who was very old, oh dear, I dread to think how old he actually was, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Great. Here comes the confrontation. Yes? Oh. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my son, it's not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. Again, we have no idea of the tone of his voice. Yeah? 
But all he's saying is, I've heard and it's not good. No, my sons, it's not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will indeed intercede for him? Whoa, so he's laying it out. Yes? Possibly, you might think, but we don't know the tone of voice. His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke. For it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Whoa, excuse me. God is nice, isn't he? What were these guys doing? When I looked on Google Images for bad parenting, I came across this photo and I thought, I can't use this. And I thought, actually, yes, I can. It was a photograph of a young child in a high chair with a can of lager in one hand, a cigarette's being put in his mouth, and an adult hand is reaching out to light the cigarette. I hope you find that shocking. Yes? It should be. You would never do it as a parent. But by actually not doing a great deal of anything, like we've just read, it was the Lord's will to put them to death. They were willfully sinning in a position of responsibility and accountability before God. God's response, anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord, and that person must be cut off from his people. Because he's despised the Lord's word and broken his commands, that person must surely be cut off. His guilt remains on him. Uh, at the bottom, Exodus 31, 14 to 15 equates cut off with actual death. It's not just a banishment. Because they're doing something that bad whilst representing a holy God. And God said, actually, it's my intention to kill them. The picture up there. Okay, so Chris is saying surely uh, Eli should not have just heard from others that this was a problem. He should have known. Um, I get what you're saying, but actually, how often? Do you know that something is a problem and you're hesitant to tell the parent? Yeah. What's, what's it going to do if I actually tell... What trouble am I going to be in if I tell them? It's a very difficult position to be in. Absolutely. But I can also understand how he might not... And in fairness, Hophni and Phineas may well have been trying to keep some of this from him. And he's got a lot on his plate. There are different reasons why he might not have known. But... Okay. Yes, absolutely. Judith has said that... Yeah. Judith is just saying, for those of you who might not have got it, Eli is old, 98. He's also almost blind. So he might not have necessarily physically seen, so he's relying on hearing. Yeah? We'll come on to that in a second. But all good points. You're getting under the skin of the guy here, which is great. The picture on screen. Children need more than a parent who will talk about boundaries. They need a parent who will be boundaries. I'm sure that many of you will have struggled, either with your own family or watching other family, with children who have boundary issues. Yes? Um, there are two instances I've come across. Um, one of a school in 2009 in Taiwan, which looked at the psychological impact on children of physical boundaries in a school playground. And they messed around with it. Sometimes they left a fence in, sometimes they took the fence down, sometimes they put a physical wall in place. And what they found for that culture, actually, was to make a mound of earth was enough for the children to feel that it was a boundary. Yes? Why is that important? Because children need to know where the edges are. 
There was a school in Texas which took this even further. They were out way in the lovely plains of Texas. And they said, look, there's nowhere the kids can go and safely, so we just take the fences down altogether. They can go out in the playground and they can run. Two things happened. One, a lot of the children wouldn't go outside because they felt unsafe because they had no edges. And secondly, if they did go out, they hugged the walls. Because at least I know that there's something safe somewhere and I can touch it and feel it. I don't like no boundaries. Kids need boundaries. Hophni and Phineas did not have them. They consider themselves above God's law which is a key theme of this whole series. What happens when children have no boundaries? They find their own. They're going to go where they want to go. And it's really hard to give a child roots and wings, to encourage them to fly whilst giving them a grounding in what is both right, I believe, biblically and in God, and safely in a very fluctuating society. What happens if they have neither? I believe there is a reason behind every bad behaviour. Excellent question, and they were grown men by now. This didn't happen overnight. So this has been going on a long time. And into that, God sends a mighty warrior on a big animal. Yes! No, a three-year-old kid. So what happens? God steps in. Verse 27, we're still in chapter 2, don't panic. A man of God. Oh, we've had some interesting opening descriptions of people, haven't we? Wicked. This guy is simply a man of God. No name, he's a man of God. Came to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your father's house when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your father out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, burn incense, wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your father's house all the offerings made with fire by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribe for my dwelling? Why do you honour your sons more than me? Ooh. A powerful phrase. By fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel. Therefore, here comes the judgment. The Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and your father's house would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. Anyone else got a different word for that in verse 30? Lightly esteemed. Yeah, lightly esteemed? Disdained. It's actually a much stronger word. We'll come on to that in a second. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your family line. And you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, in your family line, there will never be an old man. Every one of you that I do not cut off from my altar will be spared only to blind your eyes with tears. That's interesting, isn't it? And to grieve your heart and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his house and he will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a crust of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so that I can have food to eat. Whoa, that's damning, isn't it? That's what we've just read. Those who honour me I will honour, but those who despise me will be disdained. Now, please forgive, my Hebrew pronunciation is appalling. 
Oh, and it hasn't come out on there. Okay, sorry, the WLQV is an English of the Hebrew text. I'm going to have to try and embed that on the next one. It's kolalo, so call out. Please forgive me. The word for disdained. Graham is looking it up. Fine. But it's not just disdained or lightly esteemed. It actually carries with it to bring into contempt, to curse. If we honor God, he honors us. But if we don't, we're likely to suffer that level of contempt from God. Anyone watch Chariots of Fire? Eric Little? Remember the piece of paper? Those who honor me, I will honor. Yes? Now, was this prophecy fulfilled? Yes, but not until session seven or eight. Okay. I'm just putting it in there. To Solomon's priest, Abiathar the priest, the king, said, go back to your fields in Anathoth. Abiathar was a rotten priest as well. You deserve to die, but I will not put you to death now because you carried the ark of the sovereign Lord before my father, David, and shared all my father's hardships. So Solomon removed Abiathar from the priesthood, and that was part of the curse. You're not going to be allowed to be priest. Fulfilling the word the Lord has spoken at Shiloh about the house of Eli. So what this guy said did come to pass. The faithful priest he's mentioned is actually not Samuel, but it's Zadok, who was a priest under Solomon. Whenever someone is crowned in Westminster Abbey, they sing Zadok the priest. That's where he comes from. Okay, into this atmosphere comes Samuel. That is a stock photograph of a three-year-old boy. Just in case you can't remember what a three-year-old boy looks like. That is not Samuel, I assure you. But he starts at that age, ministering before the Lord. Look what it says. Judith has already preempted this one. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visitors. And one night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. There is hope if the lamp is still going. And Samuel was what? Lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. Now that could be saying the temple is where the ark was or you could read it that he's lying down near the ark. Now, strictly speaking, he shouldn't have been anywhere near the ark. It's too dangerous. But what he does say is that he was in the temple. He had positioned himself as near as he could get. Yes? Points to ponder. Eli's eyes were very weak. How might this have affected? Did he see what was going on? See, you've jumped my gun. Great. If he'd known, he should have done something about it. Was he in a position to do something about it? Yes, but he didn't. Samuel's position near the ark. Where have you positioned yourself in relation to God? Sometimes life puts us in unusual positions and we kind of drift away somewhere over to the side when, yeah, I know God is everywhere. Stay with me. If God is working here and we're asking him to keep working here but we're actually walking away, we are doing the repositioning. We need to reposition ourselves back to God. Are you close enough to hear what God is saying? Yes, Chris. permission to paraphrase that because it's going on a podcast or would you rather I didn't? Okay, thank you. I would ask permission for that. It's a very useful illustration. This lady's 
got two young sons, three 18 months, whilst her husband actually started having problems with his eyes, ended up blind, and much of the parenting devolved to you, and it became problematic. Classic case in point, if you can't see, how do you parent? Oh, there's an interesting thought to drop here. Practical things that you have to do. Thank you, Chris. He was teaching you to drive whilst he was... Okay, that's a little bit worrying. <laughs> okay, we need to wind up fairly quickly. Are you close enough in your emotional, spiritual positioning to hear from God? Or have you slightly shifted? God never shifts, but sometimes we do. One would have expected the message that came from God to come through Eli. He was, after all, the priests. But God's chain of command is based on faith, not on age or position. God is going to reinforce the message the man of God gave through Samuel. Who else do we know that said, I am too young, I can't be used? Jeremiah, Jeremiah was one. New Testament? Mary. Yeah, Mary? I was thinking of later on. Timothy? Yeah? Don't let anyone push you down because of your youth. The message is tough. Look at 11 to 14 of verse three, uh, chapter 3. We're nearly there. You know the story very well. Samuel's called in the middle of the night. Eli says, you know, this is God at the third time. Interesting that all the horrible things we've said about Eli, at least Eli recognized that God was speaking to Samuel. Yes? What did he say? And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. Oh, is that a lovely descriptive phrase? At that time I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offerings. Sacrifice or offerings is what the family business was. And he says, you can't get out of it this way. Next week, we're going to look a lot more at this whole thing. But note that Samuel did not allow the status of others to stop him speaking God's word. He's a child speaking to the father of the nation. But he doesn't allow that to stop him. What God has said, he will speak. Final points to ponder, and I'll let you go. Be prepared for God to work at any place, at any time, and through anyone he chooses. Oh, yes, how prejudiced are we spiritually? God has to work this way or not at all. I got news, guys. God's going to work through whom he chooses. It might even be you. And I'm looking at everybody. Yeah? But it might also be someone you least expect. Do not judge them. The whole of this book is based on the fact that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Okay, one thing. We've got about two minutes. Who's got one thing that I might be brave enough to want to share in a very, very short space of time? No one's brave or no one's got anything? Yes? Yeah. God just doesn't use a bit of you, he uses the whole of you. Absolutely. He will also want you to be balanced. God may be in all of us, but the sense of the ark used to represent the presence of God. So whilst God is in us, how much do we sense on the side of ourselves the presence of God? Good. So it's not so much we lose God within us, but we lose the sense of him being within us. Excellent. Thank you, Graham. We we'll sometimes lose the sense of God's presence, even though he is always there. One more. Yeah. Um, one of the points to ponder was um, whether or not God was asking me to give something up. And 
you don't give up what he asks you to give up, then he takes it away from you, and that can sometimes be more painful. Oh, we might need to think about that. If God asks you to give something sacrificially and you don't, he might take it from you anyway. I think we need to think that one through, theologically. Yeah, I think the reason behind hanging on is important. Sorry, last one, Nadia. Yeah. And then God later Absolutely. Like, like, yeah. Hannah fulfilled her promise, but Nadia's making a very valid point that sometimes when we give a free will offering to God that he hasn't actually asked us for, but we give it anyway, the blessing is bigger. Absolutely. That's always a good principle, to give back to God what he's given to you. But I have found in my humble life that if I give back to God something that he's given me, he's always got a bigger shovel. I can never out-give God. Wow. You've already done most of the homework for next week, which is to keep going until the end of chapter 8. I just wanted you to have enough homework done for two sessions, so I wasn't being nasty. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this morning. I hope you'll come back. Please don't forget, there are notes at the front. I suggest you come and get them before you go. And thank you very much for your prayers. See you next week.